thrilled to walk through Acts chapter 13 with you tonight. So if you have your Bibles, open it with me to Acts chapter 13. Throughout this series, Wildfire Church, we've played that video because of that line at the end. Uh, These walls can't preach the gospel. These windows can't pray for the sick. But you can. You see, church is not a place we go. Church is who we are. We are the church. We are the hands and feet of Christ. Acts chapter 13, and our text verse in this chapter is in verse 44. And it says, The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the, of the Lord. And we're going to back calibrate and see that the reason that the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord is because there was a man who was a soul on fire for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 13 is very interesting as we've been walking through the book of Acts. It's the passing of the baton from the focus of the church being Jews to the focus of their mission being Gentiles. From the leadership of Peter to the leadership of Paul. From the church's headquarters being in Jerusalem to the church's headquarters being in Antioch. As we know that uh, the founding fathers gathered and July 4th, 1776, and signed the Declaration of Independence. That was a moment that changed history. So Acts chapter 13 is a moment that changes history. There was a, there's a story about a salesman whose cells were down, and he was accountable. And so he gathered his sales team together in the conference room, and he said, well, he, he got a, a, a large dry erase board. And in the middle of this dry erase board, he puts a red dot. And he asked his sales team, what do you see? And somebody said, a dot. And somebody said, a red dot, a dot, a red dot, a red dot, a red dot, a red dot. And he said, how interesting. All of you see the red dot, but none of you see the board. It's all around it. In the same way, Jesus said, lift up your eyes into the hills that are white unto harvest. And we're going to see that from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 12, the church has been largely focused on Jerusalem, but in Acts chapter 13, they are now focused on the entire Gentile world, the entire world as their target for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my prayer for you is that your eyes would be lifted up to the red dot of this building, the red dot of our weekly responsibilities, the red dot of trying to make money to make ends meet, the red dot of what people think about us, the red dot of our names, the red dot of our careers, to the board all around us. And this is the commission that we are called to. So we're going to see five characteristics of a soul on fire. That a lost and dying world could not resist to come watch burn brightly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, let's start. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Isn't it interesting that we just glossed right over these names? And a casual reading might cause us to think, well, we just glossed over it because that wasn't important detail. But one of the things that makes this verse so important is that we think that it's not important. And in the same way, 
the things around the church that sometimes we think aren't important are the most important things. It's the church being the church. It's people serving, people praying, people teaching, people encouraging, people hugging, people cooking, people serving. It's the church being the church. It's the family meeting needs with love as a body of Christ. And Christ sees it. And Christ is pleased. And now we see the first of the five characteristics of a soul on fire. And this is that the early church, especially the Apostle Paul, whose name is currently Saul, but in this chapter it's changed to Paul. He had Jesus' passion. Jesus' passion. Let's pick up in verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Isn't this awesome? They are still seeking Christ. This is a church that has already encountered so much of the presence and the power of God. But like Moses, who saw the ten plagues and the Red Sea part and water gush from the rock, said, it's not enough, Lord. Show me your glory. Let me know your name. Let me see your face. The church has seen so much. But when you taste and see that the Lord is good, you're even more hungry for Christ. So they're worshiping and fasting. And that's what we're going to do this Friday night. We're going to worship. Sometimes if you go to Thanksgiving meal, if you're like me, you didn't cook too much. You just get to work up an appetite and go enjoy all the food. And in the same way, just come out Friday night hungry for the presence of God bask in his presence and we're just going to have a night of worship this Friday night just worshiping the Lord and fasting what is fasting fasting is denying yourself to go up with God it's not just denying yourself period it's denying yourself to seek God to pray to go up with God they're worshiping they're fasting and the Holy Spirit said watch this set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them Then after fasting and praying, in verse 2, we see they're worshiping and fasting. Now we see they're fasting and praying. And they laid hands on Saul and Barnabas, and they sent them off. What do we see? Their soul's on fire because they have passion for Jesus. They're hungry for Christ. They're worshiping and fasting. They're praying and fasting. Their eyes are on Jesus, and they're desperate for directive from Jesus. Oh, I told the Lord... I said, Lord, either use me like an axe or take me home. I'm desperate for you, God. I don't want to just push this thing along in my own strength. I'm desperate for the power of God because if you've experienced the power of God, you know that the Holy Spirit can do through us in two minutes more than we could do in 20 stressed out years striving to serve him. They understood this. They experienced the presence of God. They saw Pentecost. They saw healings. They knew what the power of God was. They knew what it was to have the authority of Christ resting upon them. And they weren't going to try to just manufacture or maneuver this thing in their own savvy or charisma or wit. And that's such a temptation. Think about this, guys. Never before in American history... Have we had larger churches? Have we? And never before in American history has our church been more divided, hateful, cynical, sarcastic, hell-bent, hell-bound, lustful. The United States of America 
provides the demand for the, uh, for the sex trafficking of the world. We provide the demand for the pornography of the world. Never before has the United States ever been more hell-bent and hell-bound, and yet never before have our churches been more large. Where's the disconnect? I believe the disconnect are church leaders bypassing, worshiping, fasting, praying, being desperate for the presence and power of God or a plea to say, take me home. But rather than fasting and praying to hear from God about what to do next, we just read the, la- the, the, the latest church growth book. And so an entire fleet of churches follow the Willow Creek seeker-sensitive movement. And pastors might even, in a movement like that, rebuke somebody on the worship team because they close their eyes and they raise their hand. And that might weird somebody out. We have to be very sensitive to be evangelistic. Although I found in our church history that the most evangelistic thing that we've ever done is just preach the word verse by verse. In a seeker-sensitive movement, they say, well, let's do message outlines because we don't, message outlines are fine. We've done them before. We'll do them again when they enhance our teaching But they say, let's just do outlines because if the preacher says, open up to the book of Leviticus, you don't want the person next to you to be uncomfortable because they have no idea where the book of Leviticus is. But what happens is that person will now be in church for 10 years and still have no idea where the book of Leviticus is. So from the seeker-sensitive movement, churches all across the United States then began following the purpose-driven movement. Because the church grew to 10,000 in 10 years through uh, clearly defining their purpose statement. So churches say if we clearly define our purpose statement, then we'll grow like that church. But instead, 50 pastors quit the ministry a day. That's 1,500 pastors a month. So from the seeker-sensitive movement, all the churches scurry after the purpose-driven movement. And then all of the churches scurry after the servant evangelism movement. Where they show up on Saturdays and they go to the uh, they, they go to the gas stations, they wash people's windows and they don't take tips. They do it in the name of Jesus and they give them a card and they think that now they're going to grow to organizational structure movements. Now, is there anything wrong with being evangelistically minded in our assembly? No. Is there anything wrong with a clearly defined purpose? No. Is there anything wrong with servant evangelism? Of course not. Is there anything wrong with structure? Of course not. But the problem is, when we run after these paradigms and these movements by bypassing, worshiping, fasting, praying, repenting, and being absolutely desperate for the power of God, or saying, take me home. And the leaders of all of these movements have greatly influenced my life, whether it's Bill Hybels or Steve Soldier or Rick Warren. But these guys had to fast and pray to be guided by the Holy Spirit. And if we just cut out the Holy Spirit and follow these guys, then churches have learned to market and gather a crowd, but they lack the power to change hearts. And this is the state of the church in the United States today. Oh, we've never been better at marketing. We've never been better at concerts and publishing books and marketing books and gathering crowds, but we've never been weaker in the power of the Spirit to change hearts. Which is why 
We can have the largest churches that we've ever had in American history and our culture be more hell-bent and hell-bound than ever before. But the early church didn't have their eyes on a paradigm. There was no paradigm at this point to have their eyes upon. So they were desperate for a fresh word from the Lord, which is why they were fasting and praying. And this is how they were going to be filled with power from on high. I think that there's a misunderstanding about what it is to be spirit-filled. We think that being spirit-filled is kind of like we're a pitcher, right? And God just pours water into us like the Holy Spirit is water. The Holy Spirit's not water. The Holy Spirit's a person. And what it is to be filled with the Holy Spirit is not to have more of the Holy Spirit because he's a person. It's to be more influenced by the Holy Spirit. It's to be driven by the Holy Spirit, to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. So to be filled with the Holy Spirit is not to have some greater experience from the Holy Spirit. It is to... It is for the Holy Spirit to have a greater influence upon our life, which means that right now, any of us can be filled with the Holy Spirit when we repent and surrender all to Christ. We're going to see that the Apostle Paul was mighty in power. He was mighty in preaching. He was mighty in authority because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Not because he had more of the Holy Spirit than you and I, but perhaps the Holy Spirit had more of him. Or haven't we heard of preachers who will speak in tongues and in those seasons of ministry are having an affair on their wife? And are they spirit-filled? Or they will slay people in the spirit and heal people but are addicted to pornography. Are they filled with the spirit? Or they will defend the foundations of gospel truth and their hearts are like rocks to broken people. Are they filled with the Holy Spirit? I'm as big a fan of anybody else's charismatic distinctives. As Paul said, I wish that I preached in tongues more than all of you. But an emotional experience where we say more of you, God, I want more of you, God, is not the key to being spirit-filled. The key to being spirit-filled is saying less of me, God, less of me, God. As John the Baptist said, I must decrease so that he can increase in me. Any of us can be spirit-filled before we leave this place by totally surrendering to Christ. As Paul said, I am so surrendered in Galatians 2.20 that it's not even me who lives any longer. I've been crucified with Christ. And the life that I live and the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And when we are desperate for Christ, we repent of our sins, we are totally surrendered to him, we are fasting and we are praying, we will hear from God. We will hear that whisper, go this way or go that way, and we will be filled with power from on high. So the first characteristic of a soul on fire is that a soul on fire has Jesus' passion. And the second characteristic of a soul on fire is that a soul on fire has gospel ambition. Let's now look in verse 3. So they're fasting, they're worshiping, they're praying, they're fasting, and they clearly hear from the Holy Spirit, set apart Saul and Barnabas, and they do so, verse 3, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them off. And I think this is incredibly awesome, because this is historical, this again is where the baton is passed from the Jews to the gospel mission being the Gentiles, from headquarters being in Jerusalem to Antioch, to Peter's leadership, to Paul's leadership, and this verse right here changed the world through this verse we're here today worshiping Jesus 
And I love this because this is not what Saul and Barnabas dreamt their lives would look like just months before this. They had no idea. In fact, let's read a bit about Barnabas' background. Acts chapter 4, verse 36 and verse 37. Now, this is when the church was still in Jerusalem before the persecution and they scattered. Joseph, who was called Barnabas, and the reason Joseph was called Barnabas is because Barnabas means son of encouragement. Barnabas had a large stature, we deduce from another place in Scripture, and he was a great encourager. So he was this larger-than-life personality. He was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, and he sold a field. This is when the church is still in Jerusalem. He sold the field, the only church in Jerusalem, that belonged to him, and he bought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. What's really cool is that Joseph, whose name is changed to Barnabas, he was a businessman. He was a wealthy man. He had a field. He sold it because he realized that anything this world had to offer was a blue light special compared to the ambition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's look at Paul before uh, this event. We read just a few chapters ago, he's persecuting the church. He's breathing out violence against the church. He kills the first martyr of the church, Stephen, and he's still breathing out violence. But we read about Paul before he was Paul and he was Saul, that he was one of the youngest of Pharisees. He was exceeding in zeal above all of his contemporaries. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel. That would be the equivalent of our Harvard. And he was passionate and he was knowledgeable. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And in terms of upholding the law, he was flawless. In terms of zeal, he said, just passionate, persecuting the church. And now he's being sent out to preach the gospel and expand the very church that he was previously trying to crush. And both Paul and Barnabas would testify that everything before Christ was rubbish. In fact, that's what Paul called it. He said all of this knowledge, all of these accolades, all of this worldly success was dung, manure, compared to the surpassing greatness of my Jesus and knowing him and being surrendered to him. In fact, I was having lunch with uh, somebody today. Uh, Karen and I were having lunch with one of our missionaries, and he and his wife have an orphanage in Kenya. And just a godly couple. We love them so much. We're asking them to say a blessing over us at our, at our wedding. And... Um, an awesome, awesome couple. And he was telling me that in, in Kenya, they have about 100 kids at their orphanage. He said he was just being dogpiled by these kids and um, just, they were laughing and they were chattering, they were running, they were playing, they were hugging him. They all wanted to be picked up and held. And he said his heart was filled with so much love. And he said, Lord, I am more wealthy than Bill Gates. And this is, this is Paul and Barnabas. They gave up everything to surrender to Christ and to carry this gospel to the uttermost part of the earth. And in their hearts, Paul said, I am more wealthy than I ever imagined. Romans chapter 9, verse 1 through 3 Listen to this burden that Paul had for his people. He said, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Did you see Paul's heart? He said, I would rather be cut off. I would rather be hell bound. If it would mean my people having a heart to turn to Christ. Do we have this heart for the lost? I fear that instead, a lot of people in the church view people outside of the body of Christ as them. We're us and that's them. Or the other side. Or maybe even angry at them. But we're to be broken for them. Jesus wept over Jerusalem and he longed to gather Jerusalem to himself. He said, as a mother hen gathers her chicks. That's the heart of Paul. He said, I would rather be cut off and hell bound if my people would just call out to Christ. They had gospel ambition. And they realized in trading worldly success, in trading accolades, in trading what they thought their life would unfold as for gospel ambition was an infinite trade up and it brought more joy and peace than they ever imagined so that Paul called his life before Christ dung he was a soul set on fire because he had Jesus passion secondly he had gospel ambition thirdly they had scripture devotion they were devoted to the word of God and I do believe that the church in the states by and large has lost a passion for the word of God In fact, that's what Paul said in Acts chapter 13, verse 27, to people who knew the Scripture, but they didn't understand the Scripture. Verse 27, for those who live in Jerusalem, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the council, and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, the prophets who talked about a Messiah who would come to save the world from their sins. These Scriptures proclaiming the Messiah, they would read them every Sabbath, Paul said. They actually fulfilled them by condemning them when they crucified him. They heard the word, but they didn't receive the word. And we have to ask ourselves if we've bought into anything other than a true gospel, and it can have just a little truth intermingled with a little lie to be a perverted gospel, a watered-down gospel, a prosperity gospel, a, a... Gospel that won't work in a third world country, a gospel that can't give hope to somebody on death row, a gospel that can't explain why opposition comes and the enemy and the enemy comes against us like a flood when we have strong faith and are doing everything right to the best of our ability. A gospel that is not married to some political party, but a gospel who looks towards Christ. And a heavenly kingdom, a gospel that believes to the core of our being that if somebody repents of their sins and places their faith in what Jesus did for them on the cross and believes that God raised up God the Son three days after his death, that immediately their sins are forgiven. They go from enmity to a friend of God, from eternal death to eternal life. The Spirit of Christ is within them, never to leave them. And they are clothed with the very righteousness of God. And they're given a new heart and a new capacity to love like they never had before. This is the gospel that we preach. But instead, in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 3, Paul says that people gather together, people with, with 
ears that sort of tickle and they just want someone to sort of scratch that for them and they tell them what they want to hear. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And again, when we look at our culture, which has never before had larger churches, which is, and our culture, which has never before been more sarcastic, cynical, divided, think about this. Whether Republican or Democrat, if they're elected president of the United States, they are immediately villainized, demonized, and hated by 150 million people. We are a divided nation who again are providing the demand for the sex trafficking of the, trafficking, of, trafficking of the world and the pornography of the world. Why is that? The prophet Hosea would say in Hosea chapter 4 verse 6, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because if you've rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you've forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. So the need of our nation is for a sweeping, weeping revival. But a sweeping, weeping revival will never take place unless it first takes place in our hearts. And we get our face in Scripture every day. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. A soul on fire has Jesus' passion, gospel ambition, scripture devotion. And fourthly, a soul on fire has grit in the face of opposition. So Paul and Barnabas are sent out, and they sent out to take the gospel to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. In Turkey and surrounding areas, modern-day Turkey and surrounding areas in verse 4. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. They had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Pathos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Pallas, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So he was a, they were opposed. They have opposition right off the bat. And we see that as this chapter unfolds, the, the opposition begins to increase because obviously this sorcerer was good at slandering. He was good at lies. He was good at stirring people up. And so he, they had more opposition. The next chapter, they have more opposition. The next chapter, they have more opposition. They have so much opposition that Paul is stoned. They think he's dead. They drag him outside. He comes through. And when he stands up, he doesn't call it a day. He goes back into the very city and continues preaching the gospel. So they had grit in the face of opposition. opposition, And I like that word grit because grit, I think, is a little grittier than simply perseverance and endurance. It means no matter how much passion the opposition has for the world, we are going to have more passion for Christ. No matter how tirelessly they work, no matter how much energy they have to slander us, to oppose us, we are going to have more energy to pray for them, to bless them. No matter how many times they knock us down, we will have more grit to stand back up. And no matter how many times we stumble and fall, we will stand back up time and time again. Because we don't place our confidence in ourselves, but we place our confidence in the grace of God. As we read in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great 
is your faithfulness. I've prayed before, Lord, if you're done with me, take me home. And I wake up the next morning, check my pulse, and I say, okay, I'm good. There's a lot ahead of us. The mercies of the Lord are new every single morning. And in James chapter 1, verse 2, as we have this gospel ambition, as we strive to share Christ with people, we read that there's going to be trials, various trials. The enemy will come against us like a flood. Not if, but when. It's going to happen. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But we don't despair because he said, be of good cheer. We have joy for I have overcome the world. See, don't mistake the gospel for a dance, the Christian life for a party. It's not a dance. It's not a party. It's a fight. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, 7 through 8, chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. And may this be put on all of our epitaphs and inspire those who knew and loved us. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, Paul said. I have kept the faith. So let's be gritty. Let's be scrappy. And when opposition comes our way, and when we strive to proclaim Christ and share the good news of Jesus Christ, opposition will come our way. And let's recognize that, rejoice that we are counted worthy to suffer. Glorify Jesus. Know that all things will work together for the good. Know that we are being refined into the very image of Christ. And continue to preach Jesus. We read in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, Do not grow weary in doing good, for in due season you will reap a harvest if you don't give up in due season. This says that we sow seeds of prayer. We sow seeds of of sharing our faith. We sow seeds of inviting people to Christ. We sow seeds of ministry. And we will reap a harvest, but we will reap a harvest later than we sowed the seed in due season. We will reap a harvest more than we sowed. You sow a seed, a kernel, one seed, and you have a tree. So we sow and we'll reap later than we sowed. We'll reap more than we sowed, and we will reap a harvest. Think about Paul. We're about to enter into, and I won't read it, but I encourage you to go back in Acts chapter 13 and read this on your own. Paul preached his first sermon right here. And it was a beautiful sermon. It was a powerful sermon, a convicting sermon. And Jesus was glorified. Many people placed their faith in Christ. The whole city invites him back the next day. More people begin persecuting him. It's how it goes. It's how a fight goes, right? We just trade blows. But we keep loving. We keep forgiving. We keep giving. We keep sharing. We keep serving. We don't give up because our eyes are on Jesus and we're living for an audience of one. But what's so awesome about Paul's sermon is that if you take Paul's sermon and put it on a transparency, is anybody else old enough to know what a transparency sheet is? We were in a staff meeting the other day and I made the mistake. I said, yeah, let's... uh, what did I call it? I said, oh, yeah, let's, let's get a VCR in here. I said, I mean, a DVD player. I said, yeah, well, let's put the VCR right by the, the uh, cassette player, which is right by the eight-track player. But uh, imagine that we take the Apostle Paul sermon, and we put it on a transparency. And then we go back to Stephen's sermon right before they executed him. 
And we put Paul's sermon on top of Stephen's sermon. And guess what? It lines up. So we see the first martyr of the church, Stephen. One of the, he was at the top of the list of the seven deacons. One of the seven deacons that was chosen, the best of the best, the most humble out of a church of about 20,000 people in Jerusalem. He was joyful, encouraging, servant-hearted. He knew scripture. He loved Jesus. We read about Jesus that his face shone like that of an angel. What an awesome brother. Well, he preaches the gospel, and as a result of it, his audience doesn't get converted. They don't walk an aisle. They don't fill out a decision card. They don't raise their hand. They don't weep. Instead, they hold their ears, and they gnash their teeth, and they stone him to death. And the Bible says that everybody who stoned Stephen to death, and his dying words were, Father, forgive them. No doubt, he was looking to Jesus, and he finished that statement in heaven, for they know not what they do. And Jesus said, welcome home. And then they took their robes and put them at the feet of Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul, who consented of his death. And from there, he gathered papers to continue to persecute the church. He would drag men, women, and children by their hair into prison. The Bible says, like a rabid dog, he's breathing out violence against the church. And so they put their clothes, their robes, at Saul's feet. Why would they put their robes at Saul's feet? Because... They had to take their robes off to throw rocks. They were throwing them like baseballs, and you had to take your robes off. I mean, just one after the next, a mob pelting Stephen until he's killed. Stephen didn't see a convert. Nobody walked the aisle. Saul was consenting of his death, continued breathing out violence, but on the road to Damascus, he encountered Christ. He's converted. Saul becomes Paul, and his first sermon is almost thought for thought the sermon of Stephen, who he killed a few chapters earlier. What does that tell us? That tells us that the Apostle Paul had a model for ministry. The Apostle Paul had a mentor in ministry. And it was Stephen who he killed a few chapters earlier. And then Paul turned the world upside down. It was upside down, so he turned it right side up where he planted churches. And he changed the world. Stephen indeed had fruit. You sow a seed and you will reap a harvest. But you'll reap later, you'll reap more, and sometimes you'll reap in a field that you didn't even sow. So we sow seeds because we're doing it for Christ. And they had this gospel conviction. Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. Listen to this gospel conviction. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, Paul says, that through this man, speaking of Jesus, as he's mirroring Stephen's sermon by trekking through the Old Testament, letting it culminate with the Messiah, and then bringing it home with the conviction that your sins killed him. But if you call out to him now, you'll be saved. Through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And in these two verses right here that summarizes a very long sermon that we didn't read, it's 
the foundation for Paul's letters to the Galatians, the foundation of his, of his letters to the Colossians and the Thessalonians and the Corinthians. And it's the foundation of the gospel when the church at Jerusalem started getting a little confused and even the apostle Peter, that he would shake them by the collars and he would bring them back to this gospel. Through faith in Christ, you receive as a gift a righteousness that you could never achieve through the law of Moses. And that was the gospel. And the soul on fire has Jesus' passion, gospel ambition, scripture devotion, grit in the face of opposition, and gospel conviction that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we must call on the name of the Lord, or, as Paul said, if salvation could be inherited in any other way than calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died for nothing on the cross. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. And I'll close out with this verse. Now Nahab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which the Lord had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Seems like a random verse, doesn't it? How do we get from Acts to there to that story? Well, the reason this happened in the tabernacle of the Old Testament, Moses communed with God in the Old Testament on Mount Sinai. His presence would descend like a cloud. But as it was time for the people to leave Mount Sinai, the way that a holy God could continue to relate with an unholy people was to develop a system of worship through the tabernacle. So, did you guys see Raiders of the Lost Ark with the Ark of the Covenant? So in this tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, there was the holy place and the holy of holies. The Ark of the Covenant was in the holy of holies. There was a mercy seat. They would sacrifice bulls and goats and rams and sheep. The high priest would dip his hand in the blood and take it to the mercy seat inside the holy of holies. Only the priest could go in there in this mobile tabernacle that moved with Israel and he would sprinkle blood seven times on that mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant and this is how a holy God could relate with an unholy people was through this tabernacle worship that involved the slaughter of bulls, goats, and lambs because that system of worship was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ before Jesus Christ was ever born. Just as today we proclaim Jesus was slaughtered on a cross as payment for our sins so a, ho- so, a, so a holy God can relate to an unholy people and we can be forgiven and righteous. Jesus was slaughtered on the cross so that we could be free and forgiven and children of God. And just as we hear the gospel preached about what Jesus did for us, they hear the gospel preached about what the Messiah would one day do for them. And it was a very graphic, metaphorical, object lesson sermon through bulls, rams, lambs, goats being slaughtered. It was, as the author of Hebrews said, a shadow 
of the reality. It was, as the author of Hebrews said, very gloomy compared to the joy and the celebration of the gospel that we have with clarity. So so a holy God would relate to an unholy people now and then through the blood of Christ. As we preached that, they preached it then through the shadows, through the foreshadowing, through the metaphors, through the object lessons of goats and rams and sheep that represented Christ. So, Chris, could we pull that verse up again in Leviticus 10.1? So, the high priest's two sons, Abihu and Nadab, were helping their dad tend to this tabernacle worship. And they thought it would be a good idea to have a fire continue to burn with incense. They thought that would be a good idea. Why not, right? It would just sort of enhance things. So, they each took a censer and put fire in it, and they laid incense on it and offered it unauthorized. It was unauthorized. God didn't tell them to do it. And as a result, God consumed them with fire. What's going on here? They came up with their best way as sinful men to relate to a holy God, and their best way was through this particular work. It was a good deed. And they tried to bypass the blood of the Lamb, which is a picture of the blood of the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist calls him, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sins of the earth. And this is the gospel. There is only one way for sinful people to have a relationship with a holy God, and that is through the blood of the Messiah. Through faith in the blood of the Messiah. And if we try to just come up with our own religion, come up with our own good works, come up with our own deeds, and as sinful people try to relate to a holy God by giving coats when it's cold, that's an awesome thing. Just as lighting a fire was an awesome thing and burning incense was an awesome thing or going to church or or going to Sunday school class or reading a book, these are awesome things. Or trying to be a pretty good person or best dad I can. These are awesome things, but it's bypassing the blood of the Lamb. And that is the only way that our sins are going to be forgiven. Jesus paid for our sins on the cross, and through faith in Christ, we are forgiven, and we are heaven-bound. And sometimes people say, but what about people who've never heard the name of Jesus? Doesn't that give us a greater responsibility? Because we've heard the name of Jesus a thousand times. That doesn't discredit the gospel. That should stir our gospel ambition and our sense of responsibility to do whatever we have to do, even if it's what Barnabas did, even if it's what Paul did, and that's to give it all up for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that just one more person could come to Christ. And they can place their faith in Christ because whether it's here, whether it's there, whether it's then, whether it's now, nobody will be cleansed of their sins. Nobody will be clothed in the righteousness of God apart from their faith in the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross. The Apostle Paul changed the world, and so can we. But he was a soul on fire, and we can be that as well. There's a story about a young philosopher who wanted Socrates' knowledge. And he goes up to Socrates and he says, Oh, great Socrates! How can I have your knowledge? And Socrates says, follow me, recognizing an arrogant young man when he sees one. They're by the coast. Socrates walks into the water. The young man follows him. 
And Socrates looks at him and says, what do you want? And the young man says, knowledge. And Socrates grabs him by the back, back of the neck, dunks him underwater, holds him for a few seconds, pulls him up, and he says, what do you want? And he says, knowledge. And he puts him under the water again, holds him a few seconds longer, pulls him back up and says, what do you want? He says, knowledge. He puts him under. Now the guy's almost drowning. He's kicking, and he pulls him up, and the guy's gasping for air. And he says, what do you want? And he says, air. And Socrates says, when you want knowledge, like you want air, you'll have it. And this was Paul. He was a soul on fire. This was the early church in Antioch. They had Jesus, passion, gospel, ambition, devotion to scripture, grit in the face of opposition. They had conviction in the gospel more than they wanted air. Again, it's not that, it's not that they had more of the Holy Spirit. They had the same Holy Spirit that we immediately have when we place our faith in Christ's blood that was shed for us on the cross. But does the Holy Spirit have as much of us as he had of them? He can right now. All we have to do is surrender. Like Paul said, less of me, more of you. No, in fact, none of me until it's all of you. And the life that I live is no longer I who live, but it's you who live it through me, Jesus. That's when we find life. Abundant life, as Jesus put it. Would you stand with me, please? Father, we pray that you would set us ablaze. Let us be souls on fire. In Jesus' name. I pray that each person here would change the world by changing their world. Maybe, may we be fully surrendered followers of you and may you fully live through us God of power God of love God of conviction God of mercy and grace and truth may you live fully through our surrendered lives and if you're here tonight and you've never placed your faith in Christ and Christ alone I just want to invite you to do that right now. And perhaps it seems like a good idea to try to be getting to a holy God through good things that you do, like lighting a censer and incense. But there's no way to a holy God but by the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross when he paid for our sins. And so let's just call on the name of the Lord. Everybody just pray in an audible voice to encourage the person next to you. Jesus, I know that I've sinned. And your word says the wages of sin is death. So I trust in you. I trust that you died for my sins on the cross. And I'm not going to go around the cross. But I bow before you. And I plead the blood over my life. The blood of Jesus. And I say, thank you for the cross. Thank you, my friend. Now come into my life and lead me. Show me how to live. Show me how to relate with you. Perhaps you've been a Christian for some time. And in this response time, just pray like Isaiah prayed. Here am I, Lord. Send me. Use me. But before we can pray, here am I, Lord. Send me. We have to pray, woe is me. We have to repent. We have to surrender. We have to find confidence in the cross. And then pray, send me, God. Use me.
Let's just respond and use this stage as an altar and present your body a living sacrifice. And when we leave, know that you are entering the mission field. In Jesus' name, Lord, just use us for your glory as surrendered vessels. Amen.